Well, thank you for being here this morning. We continue our worship as we turn our attention to God's Word, and I invite you to turn, please, to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. Our study of the book of Acts brings us really today into the next section in this book. In Acts chapter 1 through 7, the church is established. And in verses 8 uh, through 12, the church enlarges uh, as it moves out from Jerusalem uh, with the gospel of Jesus Christ to other places. The last time we uh, considered Stephen and his defense before the council, uh, the Sanhedrin, uh, and in that defense, uh, Stephen was really not defending himself, but was really recounting uh, the Jewish history. And he brought to the forefront as he applied the truth that there seemed to be a pattern as he applied the truth that they were always resisting and rebelling against God, his plan, and the individuals that he raised up, ultimately rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was the culmination of their rejection as they executed their Messiah, Jesus, by their Uh, choosing to have him put to death. The result was that Stephen was stoned to death, as we saw last time, and he is known as the first uh, Christian martyr. Uh, You probably wonder about the title of this uh, message uh, for today. It is not the beginning of a a joke, a deacon, a magician, and an apostle. Uh, I, I thought about saying they were going to go into a synagogue, but then that, that would be a little too far. Uh, but the record that we have here uh, this morning before us, uh, and I'm just going to again make some highlights, uh, verses 1 through 25, is that uh, this account continues. In fact, there's a, a tie-in with, the, with the, the martyrdom of Stephen and what transpires afterward. You'll notice in verses 1 through 4 of Acts chapter 8 that persecution arises. It says, verse 1, and Saul, now you might ask yourself the question, who is Saul? Well, if you back up a little bit into chapter 7 and you read verse 58, you will notice that when Stephen was being cast out of the city and they were about to stone him, verse 58 tells us, and they laid... And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is Saul of Tarshish that we're going to hear about later in the book of Acts. And by his standing there and and having those, those, those articles of clothing put at his feet, he was, if you would, the official representation of the Sanhedrin that Stephen being put to death was, was a, a just and legitimate thing in their eyes. And he became the official witness to his death that it was in keeping with the law of God and the way that they were understanding it. And so verse 1 of chapter 8 says, And Saul approved of his execution. If you were to jump ahead in the book of Acts and later hear from his own testimony, Acts 22.20, he'll tell us there that he consulted and gave his consent to the death of Stephen. And as a result of this, and Stephen's preaching that day, verse 1 continues, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered 
throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria except for the apostles. Verse 2 tells us that devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them uh, to prison. And so you have this man, Saul of Tarshish, uh, that becomes, uh, if you would, the the one who uh, sort of spearheads this persecution against these people who were known as Christians or Christ followers. And, and notice that this persecution was, was limited at this point to, to those who were in Jerusalem. So the result was that the believers were scattered and were, ter- were told that they went out throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now that's kind of interesting because you'll recall that early on in the book of Acts, when Jesus, right before his ascension, gave uh, instruction to his disciples, he says, you're to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. See, but up to this point, they had been staying in that one locality in Jerusalem. And this persecution actually scattered them out and moved them out. In fact, look at verse 4 with me. It says, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And as you read that, you see that God permitted this persecution to happen. And in his providence was using it to actually move the gospel out beyond Jerusalem. See, they could have become very comfortable there in Jerusalem. Uh, They were having great times of fellowship, great times of teaching. Needs were being met. They were were having favor with the people. By and large, it was the leadership of the nation that was against them. And they might have just become very comfortable. But God used the circumstances to move them out beyond their comfort zone and to get his word out. And these events end up advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you see, persecution can do one of two things. It can either stifle and actually stop the work of the church and and the witness of the individual Christian, or persecution can embolden the Christian and move the church to action. And it's amazing when you read some of the testimonies of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ uh, that are suffering in some of these places in the world that they are determined to follow Christ no matter what the cost. And, you know, it's a challenge for us uh, to to, uh, have that same mindset uh, in our day. And when God does uh, allow these challenges to come our way, and you might say, well, right now we're not being persecuted. Well, that's true, Uh, but that day may come. Uh, One of the things that this does is that this uh, challenges us Uh, to to know and embrace what you believe. You know, it's amazing. When when you're not being challenged with what you believe at times, you can just sort of take it for granted and just become comfortable there. But if if your faith in Jesus Christ is challenged on any level, that's going to cause you to go back to the foundation, which is Christ, and to be sure that you know Him and are following Him. I think a second thing that this uh, challenge to their faith brought was a greater need that caused them to depend upon God and trust Him. Because where are they going to find favor? They can't stay in Jerusalem, and now they're into the unknown. 
And you know, when we face circumstances and difficulties and challenges to our faith, the unknown becomes great in our minds and looms large with that fear. Where are we going to go to have a confidence that we can actually continue and endure by going back to uh, our Lord Himself? And it causes us to depend upon Him. But I think this circumstance also reminds us that God can use our circumstances for a higher purpose. For a higher purpose. I remember there was one man at, at the... It, was, it wasn't in reference to persecution, but just this idea that God can use our circumstances for a greater purpose, sometimes unknown to us. There was a man at the previous church that I served one time that got uh, quite sick and ended up in the hospital. And they didn't know exactly what was wrong with him. And they were running all these different tests, and, and, and it just seemed like he was sick. He wasn't getting worse. He wasn't getting any better. But they weren't finding out what was wrong. And I remember going to visit him the one, on one occasion, uh, and uh, uh, he was uh, attached to an IV and was walking around with this because he needed some of that. Uh, they, they thought maybe he might have had an infection that they couldn't determine. So he was just walking around with his wife, and he says, let's go into the one waiting room. And we were, we were visiting out in the waiting room as he was walking around. And lo and behold, there was a, there was a, a, a couple over there. They, they were very distraught by the news that they had just gotten from the doctor. And so I had just finished talking with him and praying with him, and he, he nudged me and he says, maybe you should go over and pray with them, which in fact I did. I asked him if I could pray with them. And they, they explained to me some of their, their situations and allowed me to, to have that opportunity to pray with them. I don't know that they were believers or not, but they were thankful that someone showed some concern in their, in their circumstance. And, he, and, and Keith said to me, he says, maybe I'm here just to be a witness for someone else. Maybe sometimes God brings us into circumstances in our lives, not so much for our benefit, but for the benefit of someone else. And God, in this circumstance, allowed the persecution in his sovereignty, in his providence, and the result was that the gospel went out further and was spreading out. And so you see, this persecution, though it uh, was intended to actually blunt and stop the spread of the gospel in the Christian actually was used and resulted in the gospel going forward. Now notice this, verse 5 tells us that Philip was one of those ones that went out as a result of this. Do you remember Philip? He was one of the seven deacons that were appointed back in chapter 6 and verse 5. And notice the text tells us that he went down to the city of Samaria and he he proclaimed to them Christ, the Messiah. Now, that's kind of interesting because where he goes is a place that the Jewish people tried to avoid at all costs. See, there was a long history between the Samaritan Jews and the Jews that lived in Judea. And part of that, uh, that, that situation goes back in their history, where after the, after the captivities that took place, uh, the Jews that were in the north uh, were intermingled with some of the peoples of the other nations. And so the, the Jews that were in the south uh, saw them as, if you would, forgive the term, half-breeds. They weren't pure Jews. And so they didn't want to associate with them. It didn't help that there was a rival temple built at one time. and, and that There was a temple in Samaria in the north, but there was also the temple uh, of Solomon in the, in the south. And that caused conflict. You know, this was the very place, remember, that Jesus met the woman at the well and interacted with her 
and in fact showed her her need for living water, and she came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And not only her, that Jesus transformed her life, but the whole village came out and realized Jesus was the Messiah. Maybe there were already seeds that were planted in this community. And now Philip goes there and preached Christ. And notice this, we're told here, and the crowds paid attention to what they had been said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. Now, this is kind of interesting. We saw that God not only used the apostles with miraculous signs and wonders. Last time we saw Stephen being used in that particular way. And now Philip is being used in this way. And notice, these signs and wonders caused them to, to sort of pay attention to the message that was being preached. That's one of the reasons God, why God was using these signs and wonders to authenticate the message that was being proclaimed, that it was real and that it was genuine. And notice how it's described here. People were being delivered from unclean spirits as they were crying out with a loud voice, and they came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, and the result was that there was much joy in that city. Here was a testimony to the reality of the living God, that God is real. He's able to set people free who are captivated and in bondage to sin and the things that weigh them down in their lives. Even when the origin of that is spiritual bondage that comes from demons and other places, that Christ is able to set the captive free. And not only does he set people free spiritually, he helps them in their physical bodies. In that people who were paralyzed, people who were lame, people who had all these, these, uh, these uh, physical limitations were being healed and made whole by the power of Christ. And lo and behold, there was much joy, as we're told, here in this city. And here he proclaims Jesus and the gospel advances, and the result is that there is much joy. And you know, the gospel of Jesus Christ transforms and changes lives. Have you discovered that in your life? That you are different because Christ has redeemed you and made you his own? And also in your life, do you sense the working of God in your life, that there is indeed the power of God in your life to continue to be transformed, to continue to be changed, to continue to do the things that God calls you to in Jesus Christ? You see, in Philip's situation, he was indeed demonstrating that. And for people to hear that same message, people need to hear the good news about Jesus Christ so that they too can believe and be saved. And Philip was doing just that. He was proclaiming Jesus Christ that people might hear the gospel and that they might believe and be saved. In fact, the Apostle Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the, one, the mouth, one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And here's part of that good news. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the message of the good news of the gospel, 
that God in Jesus Christ has come into this world in order to save the likes of me and the likes of you and the likes of our fallen human race. And that's the good news. But notice Paul goes on to say, and I'm not going to read the whole passage, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed, and how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard, and how are they to hear without someone preaching? You see, in order for someone to come to faith in Jesus Christ, they have to hear the gospel message. And the only way that they're going to hear the gospel message is through me and through you sharing the good news with them. And Philip indeed did that, and God honored that preaching of Christ, and people were saved. Now notice this. There's another man that shows up in this text. His name is Simon, the magician, is the nickname that he's given. And notice, this man, as the scripture tells us in a little bit of the backstory, verses 9 and 10, tells us that he had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. So he boasted in himself and called himself Simon the Great. Simon the Great. Have you heard of different uh, magicians that call themselves, you know, you know Houdini the Great or... or you know, Stephen the Great uh, or Amanda the Great, these magicians that are out there. He was thinking that he was somebody great. In fact, he must have had some type of power, more than there was just sleight of hand, because everybody was paying attention to him. In fact, they, they were so impressed at the things that he can do that he said, this man is the power of God that is great. They were actually thinking that the power of God was resident in this man. And did you know that there is power that exists out there that doesn't come from God that is supernatural? That's why you and I as believing people need to be discerning because there is a spirit realm that individuals tap into that give them a power that is supernatural but is not from God. And maybe this man, Simon, was tapping into the power of the occult and was deceiving the people. And notice this, the result was that the people paid attention to him because he had amazed them with, their, with his magic. They weren't just going, ooh, that's a trick, sleight of hand. You know, the thing that you try to do as a child, you know, where you pick a card, any card. You know, you pick the card and then you put it in the deck and then you pull it out and it's, here's your card. No, that wasn't it. Well, maybe let me try again. That's the way it usually happened with me. Let me try again until I got to all 52 and there it was the last one. It never really worked. But this was more than that. This was a supernatural working that wasn't from God. However, notice what happened. It says, but when they believed Philip, they believed what? The message concerning Jesus Christ and the good news that he preached about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. They were baptized, both men and women. They not only received Christ by faith, but then they showed that they were transformed by Christ by water baptism. You know, and that's something that I think that the evangelical church maybe doesn't emphasize enough, that when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you profess that faith publicly by being baptized. And water baptism symbolizes that you have died in Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, and you are identifying with him. And baptism is for believers only for it pictures our one's salvation in Jesus Christ. And so uh, these individuals were coming and they were believing uh, and they were being baptized. 
And we're told here that even Simon himself believed and was, uh, after being baptized, he continued to, to go with Philip as Philip was going around and preaching. And seeing the signs and great miracles he performed, he was amazed. Whatever power this man Simon might have had, it appeared that Philip had an even greater power that was manifest. and He was intrigued by that. Now, here's an interesting thing, verses 14 and following. Because Jerusalem had heard that Samaria had received the word of God. And did you notice the, the pattern that's here? When, when Philip begins his ministry there, they pay attention. Then they listen. Then they see something different. Then they believe the good message. Then they are baptized and they receive the word of God. That seems to be a progress and a pattern that you can see in this context and in this setting. And you know, when you and I have opportunity to share the gospel, we don't know where people might be in their spiritual journey. They may have heard the gospel message before you come along and share it again. It's like a seed that is planted and then it's watered. But you know, ultimately, God is the one that causes the growth and brings it to spiritual fruition and life. And they received the word of God. So Peter and John then were sent down to Samaria. Verse 15, it says, Who came and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he was not fallen on any of them yet, but had only, they've only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Verse 17 says, Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. I'm going to stop there for a moment. You might ask yourself the question theologically, wait a minute. If these people were believers in Jesus Christ, and they were already baptized, why was there this, this apparent delay in the Spirit of God coming upon them and filling them? That's a very good question. Uh, here, here are uh, uh, several things that, that may help us to understand that. Number one, you'll recall that, that the gospel was now entering into a new frontier, a new region of Samaria. Up to this point, it had been just primarily Jewish people. Now it's the Samaritans that are considered half-Jews, if you would. How are they going to know that they are part of the one body of Christ and part of the one work of God? God sends his spirit in a, in a delayed fashion to say, Samaritan believers, you are just as much a part of the church and the body of Christ as the ones that are in Jerusalem. And they have, a, if you would, a Samaritan Pentecost, their own Pentecost. It also uh, says to them um, that they were unified and part of that one body, as I've mentioned, that they're connected with the church in Jerusalem. There are no second-class citizens in the, in the household of God and in the church of God. It's not like, well, the people in Jerusalem have all that God has, but, but you are secondary. You don't have as much of the things of God. No, you have all that God offers in Jesus Christ. And I think it's interesting because in this context, Peter talks about the, the Spirit of God and, and, and the coming of the Spirit as God's gift to believing people. I think there's a lesson here for us. While I do believe that the Spirit of God comes to indwell every believer at the moment of salvation, and all of us possess the Holy Spirit, if you would, if I can use those terms, that He indwells us. Sometimes the question we might 
ask ourselves and ask before the Lord is, does the Holy Spirit have me? Do I maybe need a Pentecost, if you would, a place where I am fully giving myself to the Spirit of God to use me as God sees fit? And sometimes, if you would, in the Christian life and experience, there is that, if you would, delay that a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, is following him, and doesn't understand everything that God has given us in Jesus Christ, including the work of the Holy Spirit, until they're informed and taught that, and they realize, I must yield myself fully to God. And then the Spirit of God begins to move in a greater uh, fashion in the individual believer's life. Have you fully given yourself to the Spirit of God in your life in following him? Well, Peter uh, prayed for them to receive the Holy Spirit, and notice what happened. Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of hands of the apostles, and he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that on whom I may lay my hands, they may receive the Holy Spirit. Something must have happened supernaturally that caused Simon to say, Wow! He laid his hands on him, they laid their hands on him, And something happened. I would suggest to you maybe they spoke in other tongues. Maybe they were ecstatic in their praise of God. Maybe there was some other indication of God supernaturally working on these believers that Simon was, was amazed. And he says to Peter, hey, I'll pay you some money if you can give me that same power. Remember, he was a magician. That's all he knew. And the culture of that day, they would actually pay to have different uh, sort of magical uh, uh, understandings and things and tricks being taught to them. And he thought he could pay for this. Well, Peter didn't want to have any of that. In fact, it's kind of interesting. The term simony uh, uh, arose in the church. And that term was used for people who offer money to buy offices within the church because of the influence that they might have if they're in a church in a particular position. Well, how we have come far in the church where now we, we, we long for people to serve in the church and they step back and don't want to do it. Back, back in the day, some people would actually pay to have a position within the church, which was not of God, don't get me wrong. And Peter rebukes him sternly and says, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. See, the Holy Spirit and Christ's working in your life is God's gift to you. You don't earn that. You don't even deserve it. It's a gift that's offered to you from God. And you can't pay him for that or influence him in that way. And Peter says, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. And so he calls him to repent, verse 22. And he says, repent, therefore, that this wickedness of yours, uh, that you may repent of it, and pray that the Lord, if possible, that the intent of your heart might be forgiven you. And notice the insight that Peter has about this particular man. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Your sin is your master, Peter is saying, and bitterness is its fruit in your life. He's still in bondage to his sins, and he needed to repent. And so Simon answers, pray for me to the Lord. 
that none of what you said may come upon me. Isn't it interesting that out of his fear, Simon asks for prayer from Peter, but notice he doesn't mention the Lord or turn to him. I wonder if he was a true believer. Uh, you know, that is something that is uh, mentioned over and over again by various commentators, whether this man was truly a follower of Christ or if he just went sort of through the motions to sort of get uh, something that he desired. Um, I don't know that it's fully answered here in this text for us. Uh, there is some mystery here, uh, and it should cause all of us who read this account to examine our own hearts and say, do I fully know Christ, or am I just following him for the benefits that I receive? Do I truly love him from my heart? You know, the amazing thing is that uh, uh, Simon doesn't appear on the pages of Scripture again. He disappears, and that's all we hear of him. Let me ask you this morning, have you repented before God? You say, what is repentance? Repentance is an acknowledgement of sin. It's an acknowledgement that you have broken God's laws, that you have sinned against him. And repentance means not only an acknowledgement of sin, but there is a sense in which you're, there's a desire to want to turn from that sin. But how many of us are coming into this new year within a, within a month or so, into a new year, are going to make New Year's resolutions? <laughs> Any of you kept your New Year's resolutions? Anybody raise your hand that you started back January 1 and now it's November? Have you kept them? Why not? Because in, our, in and of ourselves, we don't have the capacity to change and to even do what is right. We need a Savior who can transform our hearts and give us the ability through His Spirit to live a life that is pleasing to God and able to obey His Word. Simeon's account calls us to examine our own hearts that we repent and that we turn to God and ask that we would be forgiven you know, that's the good news of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven us. First John tells us that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from some sin. Ah, you caught it. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. And aren't you glad that that once-for-all sacrifice is sufficient to forgive you and make you right with God. Are you right with God this morning? Are you following Him in faith? Are you allowing the Spirit of God to fill you and work through you and use you and empower you to live a life that's pleasing to God? It's amazing that there was an effect even on the apostles because verse 25 concludes... Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem. And notice this, Peter and John were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. You know, they didn't just make a beeline back for Jerusalem. When they were going back, they took that opportunity to preach to everyone they came in contact with in these Samaritan villages. And you could see God even moving their hearts that had been settled in Jerusalem that now the gospel, you see, is for everyone. It's a gospel message for the world and not just for the Jews alone. 
That's a gospel message that has been entrusted to me and to you this day to go out and to proclaim in the power of the Holy Spirit. May we do that as God enables us to the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Shall we pray? Father, we do thank you for this time together this morning in your word and in worship. And we would pray, Father, that our considerations of your word may challenge our hearts. That we, O oh Lord, might continue, Lord, to seek those opportunities to be your witnesses, to be your hands, to be your feet, to minister supernaturally in the name of Jesus beyond ourselves, Lord, so that those, Lord, who are the recipients of your word and the, and the mercy and compassion we might show might realize, Lord, that this comes from you and not ourselves. And so, Father, fill us afresh with your spirit. If there are those matters within our hearts and lives that hinder us from following you, Lord, may we deal with that before you and the working of your spirit in our heart to repent, to receive your forgiveness, and to move forward. And Father, we thank you and we praise you for hearing us in these things. Hear our hearts as we pray and help us to live for Christ's sake, in whose name we pray. Amen.